We have to think about the ecology of resilience and how we're creating an enabling environment. I think when given an enabling environment, humans are ultimately quite resilient. That's Teresa Betancourt, the director of the research program on children and adversity at Boston College. For the past 20 years, she's been studying former child soldiers, a generation who were victims or witnesses of violence in the war zones of Sierra Leone, Uganda, Rwanda, and Chechnya. Some of those survivors fell into chronic depression and unemployment, while others became doctors entrepreneurs, and humanitarian workers. She's been researching why some children flourish after war and how to facilitate that recovery. This is People Making a Difference, a podcast about people who are step-by-step making a better world. Welcome, Dr. Betancourt. Thank you so much for having me. So take us back to the beginning, if you would. Tell us about your original research of trauma and resilience. We've worked all around the world in um, contexts affected by conflict, the Russian Federation with the Chechen conflict on the Ethiopia-Eritrea border, also on the topic of child soldiers, both in northern Uganda and Sierra Leone. We also work with refugees resettling in the United States with Somali Bantu and Bhutanese refugees, family strengthening interventions that could be delivered for refugees by refugees. And getting back to probably the study we're best known for is the intergenerational study of war, which has been running in Sierra Leone, West Africa for almost 20 years now. And in this research, we've been tracking the lives of a cohort of 529 girls and boys since the end of the 11-year civil war in Sierra Leone when they were about 10 to 17, when they were children. And now we've continued to follow them as they've grown into young adults and are starting their own families. And so that very early study, looking at what are the processes that shape trajectories of more resilient outcomes or more risky outcomes over time. And from that, we've really been able to parlay our findings into thinking about evidence-based interventions that are scalable, feasible, and respectful of the culture and the context. Dr. Betancourt acknowledges that after a war, there is a lot of mental health issues relating to the violence, and often that's what gets the immediate attention. But that focus, she says, is too narrow and often temporary. Her research suggests that a more holistic approach, what she calls the social ecology of support, can change the arc of many young lives. And so when I'm talking about the social ecology, imagine a drop of water in a still pool and you have the sort of rings shimmering around the center. And those are the layers of influence on the life of the child that shape their mental health, shape their development, shape their life trajectories. And we do see um, that for a lot of the young people who are doing well over time, it's because a virtuous cycle was kicked off, that maybe they were particularly motivated to continue in school and people around them noticed this and started to make investments in them and helping them remove barriers to attending school or to advancing themselves. So let's bring it back down to maybe specific examples. Can you talk about a child or children maybe in Sierra Leone where you've seen a change by these interventions, by bringing support to bear? I'll start with a story that's a less positive outcome, which is a a young boy in our study. This is not his real name, but I'll call him Sar. 
He was taken as a toddler from the arms of his grandmother because a rebel commander was looking for a young boy to be a houseboy and a helper to his, his wife who had a, a young child herself. And the grandmother pleaded and begged for them not to take such a small child. Um, but nonetheless, he was taken. And he spent four years with the rebels experiencing countless exposures to violence, being forced to take drugs, being involved in raids on villages. And when he first was able to be released from the fighting force four years later, they had a very hard time finding his family. So by the time he got home, he'd spent time in many interim care centers around Sierra Leone. He came back to his family where his mother and grandmother loved him dearly, but the head of the household, the most powerful individual in the home, really saw him as shameful and didn't advocate for him. So people in the community started to taunt him and tease him. He really didn't have a lot of guidance on how to navigate those instances of provoking, and he would fight back. But without a strong advocate in the community, these instances of provoking continued. Sar eventually dropped out of school, was isolated. When we last interviewed him, he was living on the outskirts of a small village working on a farm just for room and board. He wasn't even earning an income. And this was a life really taken off course by the many trauma exposures and the separation from family, but also the difficulties in reintegration and the inability of the family to truly advocate for him. And the last time we went back to find Sargon, we learned that he had died at a young age, only in his 20s. This sort of captures the ways in which the social ecology can break down around a child. That's tragic and probably all too common after some wars. What's the the flip side of that portrait. Now, there's another girl in our study. I'll call her Musu. Again, that's not her real name. She was abducted in a raid on her school, and the rebels attacked. She tried to run, but she and her sister were both captured. They were held together around the same amount of time as Sar. But what's amazing about these two girls was the way they looked out for each other and protected each other. So again, that family relationship is protective. Um, Her young sister would even make sure to save food aside for her. They looked out for each other. When they got out and they experienced horrible traumas themselves, they were resettled uh, into a foster family. But this girl desperately wanted to go to school because her burning desire was to continue her education. And so this foster family, it's not always the case that a foster family would do this, but they began to see that the girl was very bright and they began to go the extra mile for her, like turning on the power generator at night so she could study, helping her secure the books and and pay the fees for her to continue in school. And she decided she wanted to give back after all she'd been through and study medicine. And so as she uh, was admitted to medical school because she was earning top grades all throughout her education, and some of the ways she was able to do this is her sister would do her chores for her, prepare meals so she could eat and didn't have to spend a lot of time cooking and doing other things around the house so that Musu could really dedicate herself to her studies. And so when she went on to medical school and people in the community, even some of the workers at non-governmental organizations, saw the girl's passion and her hard work and would take up a collection for her. This allowed her to uh, continue in her studies and into medical school where she would borrow people's books because she couldn't afford to buy the textbooks. And I recently was able to sit down with her and talk with her in Sierra Leone. And she's currently completing her residency and training to be one of the few female doctors in her country. And so that's all from the same cohort of 529 young people that you can have these lives that are totally taken off the rails by the breakdown in the social ecology or a social ecology that's extremely protective and interacts with that 
will determination and skill set from the individual to lead to more resilient outcomes. As I mentioned, Dr. Betancourt was taking her research findings and applying them to help others. She started an education study working with local and international groups in Sierra Leone to help poor young people get into school and stay in school. One effort, called the Youth Readiness Intervention Program, helps some 436 young people develop goals, manage their emotions, and foster relationships. So we then uh, tested this intervention that we call the Youth Readiness Intervention in a randomized control trial amongst 436 males and females who are ages 15 to 24, um, living in very impoverished community settings in Sierra Leone. And not only did we see significant improvements in emotion regulation, interpersonal skills, and daily functioning, we also observed that youth who received these interventions were six times more likely to persist in school. The success of that education program, Dr. Betancourt told me, led to a larger youth readiness intervention program in Sierra Leone for more than a thousand young people, ages 15 to 25, to help them get jobs or start small businesses. And that study is currently uh, underway. We've uh, just completed the pre to post data collection, seeing some very exciting results on anxiety and depression as well as labor market returns. We're actually seeing um, that young people are shifting how they work to work more efficiently and make more when they get these sorts of interventions. That's great. Can, can you take me down to the ground level a little bit more on the intervention? So what does that mean? Is I'm a kid that is in a program that's sponsored by the government or the World Bank to give me some training in how to become a welder or a carpenter or something. Do I get like an hour of training once a week? And what's that training look like? Is that just anger management? Can you get it down to that level a little bit? Yeah, sure. The You're right that those are the sorts of entrepreneurship programs that you might see out there. So they do a lot of problem solving around what could be an entrepreneurial enterprise that the young person could pursue. And then the readiness intervention was layered into those entrepreneurship programs. And so the readiness intervention is done in 90-minute same-gender group sessions. They're led by well-trained and well-supervised lay facilitators or non-specialists. And so the themes and issues discussed were making links to livelihoods. And so the sessions are really about developing emotion regulation skills to promote coping and also interpersonal skills and how you present yourself and get along with others. And, and sometimes when we talk about this in youth, entrepreneurship, youth employment, we call these 21st century skills or soft skills, working in teams, getting along with others, very important for the workplace. We also, as I mentioned, engage in problem-solving skills to assist them in achieving life goals. So setting a goal for themselves and using the group to talk about that goal and problem-solve and moving towards it. For young people who've lived through armed conflict, developing those emotion regulation and relaxation skills. If you look at a typical cognitive behavioral therapy manual that might be used in the West. They might talk about emotion regulation as a car speeding out of control or a television set turned up too loud. But those sort of metaphors in rural Sierra Leone don't translate very well. Mm -hmm. So in working with the young people, we came up with the metaphor of a pot of boiling water to talk about emotion regulation. So a, a pot of water doesn't come to boiling immediately. As you start to build a fire under it, it starts to bubble and percolate and the water starts to heat. And those are the signs 
that you're starting to move towards boiling. And as you start to move towards boiling, you can take sticks out from underneath the pot to cool it down. And what are those things for you? What helps you to cool down? And so in that group, the youth might express different things. They try out taking a walk, talking to a friend, um, taking a time out and listening to music and share some of those ideas. And so that they start to use the group to develop those skills to identify what triggers you, what might get you upset, and also what you can do to keep your cool and to manage strong emotions. Then once we've established some of those stabilization and coping skills, we start to move more into challenging negative views about yourself and the world around you. They walk around and everyone puts a rock in their shoe and they're asked to concentrate on the rock. You know, when you concentrate on the negative thing, what is the result? Okay, so now what if I give you all a sweet piece of biscuit and you put that in your mouth and walk around, you concentrate on the sweetness. What does that do to your perspective? And so we use just really simple techniques to help people shift some of their negativity bias towards, you know, also appreciating the positive things in their lives and the strengths they have. I asked Dr. Betancourt to give us an example of how those classes and training programs produce practical results for the young adults. I'm thinking of an example actually from northern Uganda that happened in some of our interpersonal therapy groups where young people were despairing that they couldn't pay their school fees. And then they got the idea, uh, what if I asked my uncle if I could use some of his land to plant groundnuts? And would he let me, if I planted some small crops there, keep the earnings if I sold them? And they found that by that little bit of problem solving, they were actually able to turn a profit and to make enough money to pay these nominal fees. And then they feel a sense of empowerment too, rather than hopelessness. So I think there are lots of examples like that of young people and how they've got inherent resourcefulness, but they need these sorts of settings to unlock it. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So can you talk a little bit about your work with refugees? Is it similar, the refugees in the U.S.? Yeah. Back in 2005, we were contacted by a local public school district because there was a large amount of Somali Bantu refugees resettling in New England. As families were resettling in Massachusetts and other states, They were getting complaints from the schools for things like these kids are pushing and shoving. They've got behavior problems and their parents don't show up to parent-teacher night. These parents are very disengaged. And so we reached out um, to community leaders and we learned that in a refugee camp, when there's something being distributed, usually food supplies, you need to shove and push to get to the front line or your family may not eat. And there were lots of misunderstandings that kids were exhibiting behaviors that weren't bad behaviors. They were learned coping skills that fit in one context, but didn't fit anymore now upon resettlement in the United States. And also in Somalia, it's considered very respectful to turn your child over um, to mentorship from the teacher and to stay out of their hair. And so the thought of going and meeting with the parents and the teachers together and, you know, asking certain things of the teacher was very foreign to a lot of parents. So we started to co-create a family strengthening intervention that would improve overall the parent-child relationship for school-age kids and help parents navigate better. And so we have actually also published uh, an initial pilot with 80 families where we enrolled 40 Bhutanese families and 40 Somali Bantu. We saw that there was actually a reduction in children's traumatic stress reactions, fewer symptoms of child depression as reported by caregivers, and um, in Bhutanese parents, fewer conduct problems. We didn't see the same thing on the Somali Bantu side. We also on the Bhutanese side saw reduced um, instances of family arguing. 
From that pilot, we then, through the last few years, have been doing a larger, better powered study with over 100 families, again, using the community participatory process. That was interrupted with COVID-19, so we didn't get entirely the sample size we would have liked to have gotten, but we were able to innovate and pivot and actually started to work on a digital version of the intervention using tablets to engage household members when you can't go and do home visiting. The peer counselor could connect on FaceTime or other web platforms to meet with the family. I wanted to note here that her refugee work in New England is taking on new relevance. Dr. Betancourt told me that she's been talking to U.S. officials about the recent surge in Afghan refugees and what lessons might be applied to their resettlement in the U.S. Now, let's get back to our conversation. As I listen to how you do this, it strikes me that family and community are pretty key to nurturing resilience. And, and forgive me if I'm going in a direction that sounds it's not very academic, but to me, that sounds like an expression of a kind of love. The Greeks had many different names for love, and they're, they're one of the terms was storge, which is family love or family empathy and compassion. It sounds like part of what you're doing is creating support systems that are essentially loving, bringing love into these people's lives or these children's lives or these refugees' lives in a more systematic way. Is, is, is that accurate or how would you yeah, describe that? Yeah, that? that's really beautiful. I, I hadn't thought of it in that way, but I, w- I would say certainly our interventions are grounded in the natural, organic empathy, compassion, and love that exists in families and communities. And sometimes it's just a matter of finding the platform to allow it to flourish. Mm-hmm. And this is not just my work. This is the work of a huge team of collaborators in every one of the settings community partners, community advisory boards, people that we've worked with in Sierra Leone for now going on 20 years, in Rwanda for 14 years, in the refugee community since 2005. So this takes a village in so many ways, and community is important. And we also see in our research that community can be a source of great harm. In the stigma I talked about in our child soldiers research, when there's rejection, when there's community stigma, We see time and time again in our research that it's one of the most enduring and harmful risk factors that can really shape negative outcomes in the life of a young person. And so belonging to a community and having that love, that investment, that attachment relationship is a massive protective factor. And building a sense of community and social ties are part and parcel of the process of healing from trauma and other forms of adversity. And so I do agree. I think it's about unleashing the inherent empathy and compassion that that lies in individuals and in communities. I've heard you speak about the need for education as is almost that's the hope for the future. You need a sense of hope. And that sense of hope is manifested either through education or a path to employment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, actually, we, a a few years ago, published this model that we we call the SAFE model of child protection. And so the, the model of SAFE is the interaction between S, which is safety, security, freedom from harm. A, which is the access to physiological needs, food, shelter, a standard of medical care, including mental health. And then the F in the SAFE model is family and connection to others. I think we've been talking a lot about that. And then the E of SAFE is the hope for the future component that you're talking about. Education 
and economic security, livelihoods, a sense that you can move towards a brighter future. And when it comes to hopes for the future, we see a lot of ways in which if kids aren't safe at home, if they are experiencing violence or neglect, um, even that bright view of going on to continue one, one's education or have a livelihood is really hard to secure. Same thing if, if you don't have your basic needs met for food, for shelter. The same thing if you don't have the family and the attachment relationships to give you guidance, to help you pay your school fees, to help you navigate when you hit a roadblock or a difficult teacher. And so these things are interrelated and interdependent. And I think that sense of hope for a future is a really important part of that overall picture. Mm-hmm. So there are many in academia that that don't take their work to the next level, yet you have. Can you tell me what motivates you? What makes you want to scale up your work, not just to study trauma and resilience, but, but to find ways to heal lives? Yeah, I think for me, it became a turning point where we couldn't continue to simply observe such tragedy, but also potential in so many young lives thwarted by trauma and loss to just observe and do observational research felt inadequate, if not unethical. And so if you really want to learn about something, try and change it. And so we decided to roll up our sleeves. So we started to think about parenting interventions and family-based prevention as well. And I think that's very challenging work. It takes a lot of partnerships. It takes long-lasting commitment and really working on your relationships with government, with key stakeholders, with donors. But it's ultimately much more satisfying in a way, too, because in these sorts of low-resource settings, and I'm originally from Alaska. I grew up in a a low-resource part (laughs) of the United States in a small village where we didn't have paved roads or plumbing. But in situations that are so low-resource, a little bit of quality can go a very long way. And that's really satisfying and exciting. So there's a lot of your research and other research and history even that suggests that humans are remarkably resilient. Um, in the face of adversity. Do you agree? So why? Yeah, I do agree. I, I think what's important when talking about resilience is not to see it as a trait inherent to individuals, but as a process. And I think overall our study underscores how reintegration of young people who've been through some of the worst trauma imaginable is shaped by not just their individual factors, but what goes on around them. And so we have to think about the ecology of resilience and how we're creating an enabling environment. I think when given an enabling environment, humans are ultimately quite resilient. So I like to give a homework assignment to our podcast listeners. What Mm -hmm. steps could they take to help themselves or others dealing with adversity? I think if you just go back to your immediate community, and we're all going to have a chance here in the United States with the upcoming resettlement of Afghan refugees all over um, the United States. And it's a real time for people to allow their compassion and their empathy to be unleashed and to remember the importance of those social ties, those small gestures, those little opportunities to remove a barrier for someone can be as small as donating your volunteer time to help with logistics for finding housing or securing clothing for resettling uh, populations or volunteering even for kids facing disadvantage in your own community. And, And we know from 
the research that we've done all over the world in war-affected populations that empathy and compassion and serving others is tremendously healing and to engage in giving back and acts of altruism and compassion for other people who may come from a different background than yourself can be extremely rewarding and ultimately will help us all move towards a better world. What I find compelling about Dr. Betancourt's work is how she challenges the assumption that when children face violence or trauma or, or war, it doesn't mean they'll automatically become broken adults. Remember the F in her SAFE formula? Healing comes when family and or members of the community give love and support to a child or teenager. And the E in her SAFE formula, S-A-F-E, is for education and employment. Those are the ingredients of hope. Those children from Afghanistan, Africa, or the house next door don't have to make their way in the world alone. She has shown how our support can make a huge difference in their lives. This week's challenge, Dr. Betancourt gave us one. Help Afghan refugees fleeing the Taliban. Your house of worship may already be doing work with refugees. If not, here are three websites that may help you connect with that effort in the United States. The International Rescue Committee at rescue.org. No One Left Behind at nooneleft.org. And Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services at lirs.org. Tell me how it goes. Call me at 617-450-2410 and leave me a voice message about your experience helping Afghan refugees. That's 617-450-2410. And thanks for listening to People Making a Difference, a podcast about people step-by-step making the world a better place. This podcast is produced by the Christian Science Monitor. Copyright 2021.